0: what if, what if there's abuse? What if there's something immoral that's being asked? What if, what, 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 what if? And we, and we are so prone to just miss the obvious that God's trying to say to us because there are conditions and exceptions. We know that our obedience, our submission, is ultimately and first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And when there's a clear contradiction between obeying Christ and obeying an authority, we have to be obedient to Christ. That is clear in Scripture. But too often, I think, we go too quickly to what the exceptions might be. In employment, and I was talking, Glenn helped me with this last week, and he's one who's had people working for him that he used to tell those under him, follow the chain of command. Do what you're told to do, unless it's immoral, illegal, or unethical. And I believe that's biblical. The scripture would never command us to do what is immoral, unethical, or illegal. But saving that, we do what the boss says, because he's the boss. And now, in speaking to husbands and wives, Again, the, the, one of the reasons there's even a problem, and Peter addresses this, is because as a woman came to faith in Christ, didn't. And prior to that, especially in this culture, the Roman culture, the husband had whatever his faith was, whatever God he worshiped, that is the God everybody in his household worshiped. And so just as, as with a slave... When that slave comes to Christ, all of a sudden the master no longer has exclusive authority and the master wouldn't have liked that a whole lot because that slave now has a higher authority and that master can threaten and and he can do whatever he wants to that slave and the slave can just say, you know, there's nothing you can do to me that I'm not going to accept because, you know, if you, if you physically abuse me, then God's going to use that in my life. If you kill me, then I get to be with Jesus. And so all the threats just don't have the same power that they had before that slave came to Christ. And with a marriage, when a woman came to faith in Christ and the husband didn't, all of a sudden things are not operating like they did before. And that husband, especially in a Greek-Roman society, would be very prone to begin to blame every problem that came up in that household to his wife's new faith because that's how Roman society operated. Remember, it was emperor worship. And they believed under Roman thinking that if you didn't worship the emperor and disaster came on the country, whether it was plague or famine or warfare, it was because you were not worshiping as you were supposed to worship. You're the problem. So Nero was was impaling Christians and dipping them in oil. and and lighting his streets and lighting the streets at night with them because they did not worship the emperor, and he was blaming the, the downfall of the Roman Empire on those people who weren't towing the line. I think we could expect husbands to be doing the same thing to their believing wives. And under Roman law, just as a master had the right to execute his slave, a Roman citizen had the right to execute his family if he so chose to do. His wife and his children. And nobody can say anything about it. So, she doesn't have a lot of recourse. Really, she has no options. And with that context, Peter says, wives, submit to your husbands. In the same way, in the same way that Slaves submit to their masters, but more importantly, in the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So we need to make a few observations as we go through, and then I'll try to summarize it. First of all, it is not submission to every man. In a patriarchal society, like a Muslim society, Every woman is submissive to every man. It is truly men are in charge. I don't think, in fact, I know, Scripture never presents that, never says that every woman is to be submissive to every man. It is a woman is to be submissive to her husband. That's as far as it goes. Now, a word about this whole thing of patriarchy, because I've been doing some reading on that. And, um, you know, there, there are, it is true, as I just said, in a, in a strong patriarchal society like a, like a Muslim country, it's incredible, demonic, the abuses that men heap on women. They step outside, and they aren't clothed exactly the way they want them the women can be beaten and killed. They drive a car. If they just express an opinion. I heard of a woman recently that was was beaten um, severely just because her husband saw her speaking to another woman on the street. Not even another man, just to another woman. And he didn't ha- she didn't have his permission. Everything about that is wrong. And to equate that with what Scripture teaches is nonsense, just nonsense. You cannot read the Bible and come to the conclusion that is what the Bible is saying. The irony is, as we know, though, people today are routinely attacking Christianity for saying it demeans women, and those same people won't say anything about Islam. Crazy. I don't even like using the word patriarchy because in its root, it means... Father authority or father rule. And the relationship in the Bible between a husband and a wife is not the relationship of a father to a child. We need to understand that. And so, patriarchy is a term that people have come up with to describe what the Bible teaches. It's an inaccurate description when you think about it because husbands and wives do not relate to each other as father to child. That is not what's being described. In scripture. They are equals. They are co heirs of the grace of life, as Peter's going to say in verse 7. They are as equal to each other as the Father is with the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are as equal as the members of the Trinity are. One is not lesser, one is not greater in terms of their person and their essence, their identity, and their worth. But there are differences and how they relate to each other. And there is authority, and there is headship. I want you to hold your finger here and look at a couple of other cross-references. The first in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in, <clears throat> in verse 22. Ephesians five twenty-two, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so a woman is to submit to her husband as she would to the Lord. Again, that is not saying he is a replacement for Christ or has the same authority as Christ. That is not the the case. But as an illustration of her submission to Christ, she is to submit to her husband. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands. (sighs) in everything. Some would read that and say, Well, the headship of the husband just means that as speaks of source, as Eve came from Adam, Eve was sourced in Adam, so the church is sourced in Christ, and a and a man can look at his wife and say, I'm the source of you through Adam, and that's all it's talking about. Again, nonsense. If you look over at First Corinthians chapter eleven, Headship is also mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. Not every woman, a woman. And God is the head of Christ. So this doesn't speak of source. Because God is not the source of Christ or Christ would not be God. Speaks of authority. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Pretty clear teaching. So the submission is to be as unto the Lord, and it is a wife to her husband, it is not to every man. And if you're in a marriage where the husband is not a believer, there is no more effective way to see him come to Christ than by not trying to preach to him, nagging him. I've heard all kinds of stories women putting scripture verses all over their wall and the husband doesn't even feel like he can be in his own house. And that she will run off to Bible studies and, and be diligent to not miss a Bible study but not diligent to make sure that his needs are being taken care of. Turning on the radio station so loud that he has to go out in the garage to get away from it because of the preaching on the radio station that she wants him to listen to. On and on. All meant, well, wanting to see a man that is loved come to faith in Christ. You know, it's, it's, if you think about it, most women disrespect a man who won't stand up, who won't won't stand up to them, won't stand up and do what is right. He's just a pushover, just a mouse. He's not respected by most women, certainly not by the wife. But you're not going to get him to be what he needs to be by nagging, cajoling, pushing. He just becomes more resistive. You can't move a person to lead as he's supposed to lead by pushing and pushing and pushing. Most men don't respond well to them. They just don't. And if you feel that for him to get saved or to be the leader he needs to be is dependent upon what you do, you've taken the place of God. It doesn't depend on what you do. It may depend on your prayers, but not on your words. So Peter says that they may be one, if they are disobedient to the word, that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste, meaning pure, holy, modest, and respectful behavior. Let them see the difference. Let them see a woman who cares, who loves, who supports, who affirms, in the primary way that a husband understands love, who respects. When a man's respected, he feels loved, truly does. And even unbelieving men respond well to respect. It's in our DNA. So then he he moves on to how you should present yourself and let not your adornment be literally external. And I think the translation here in the New American Standard is good. Let it not be merely external. And then he gives some examples, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Peter is not forbidding any of those things, he's not saying there sh- a woman should never have her hair braided, never have gold jewelry, never put on dresses. And that's the best one to start with, to understand he is not excluding these things. Because if he's excluding these things, it would be the same thing as saying a woman should not be dressed. She shouldn't wear clothes. Nonsense. But it's what is the, the focus? What is the priority? And it should not be on the outward, but on the inward. That's true for men as well. Again, Scripture speaks to this. First Peter, sorry, First Timothy chapter two. Peter's not alone. Peter Paul also says, First Timothy chapter two, likewise I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. There's an extended section on the same thing in Isaiah chapter 3 where God is rebuking the Israelites, the women, because they have spent enormous amount of money and time on their outward clothing, but their hearts are far away from God. And God says, I'm going to strip away all these things that are so important to you. There were such excesses in the Roman culture. One article I read said that some women would spend in the equivalent today of hundreds of dollars getting their hair done. And some would even go so far as to have threads of gold to be woven into their hair. Amazing. That is simply bringing attention to self. How can you be living as God has intended and to bring attention to self? It's contradictory. Jesus, who came humbling himself, did not come clutching anything for himself, denying himself, even to the point of death, and we live in such a way that we want people to notice us, that's one of the things I, you know, again, we've talked about this. You know, know, some churches today, you know, they powerful messages being preached, praise God. But you look at the music that's going on and you go, I can't even think about the words of the music because all I can think about is these people who who are bringing attention to themselves. It's not right. It's contradictory to the very message that we're preaching when we're trying to solicit people's attention for ourselves rather than for Christ. And so Peter says to wives, don't let that be your focus. But verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You can't do that on your own. Just wake up one morning and say, I'm, I'm going to be gentle today, and I'm going to have a quiet spirit today. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that you stop thinking and stop having an opinion and you can't, tell, you can't share that any longer. It's not what it's talking about. But you're not contentious. You're not a fighter. We all know the verses in Proverbs about being a contentious wife, not good verses, And you just wake up one morning and say, I'm not going to be contentious anymore. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be submissive. That'll last until your first coffee. But Jesus is gentle. And he has a meek, quiet spirit. And with everything else that God exhorts us toward, it is found only in Christ. So it's not what you do, but it is putting on Christ. Paul speaks about that in Colossians. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. It is not Christ-like to be a fighting, contentious, warring person. But Christ is gentle with a quiet spirit. And that is precious in the sight of God. And then verse five, for in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, man, I hate that, it just gets worse. Submission is a hard enough word and now he's got to throw obedience in there? Man, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Oh, goodness. It just gets worse. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Submit, obey, call him Lord. Man. They did not, Abraham and Sarah did not have a perfect marriage. That's the point here. There are no perfect marriages, there are no perfect men, there are no perfect women. There are no perfect marriages. Abraham was a stinker. Everywhere they went, when they left Ur and went to Canaan, when they started out on that trip, not only did they not know where they were going, how does that grab you women? <laughs> we're moving. Where to? We don't know. We're just moving. Why? Why? God said so, right. And they met, they, and that's the thing, Sarah left with him. She didn't go, come on, get your act together. A little more definition here. She said, are you sure? Sweetheart, I'm sure. God spoke, and God said move. And she goes, well, I'm with you. Amazing. And she went, having no idea where they were going. But this is the real punchline. On the way away, he says, sweetheart, though, I want you to do this because you're beautiful. You are a good-looking woman. We're going to go into territories where we're going to be vulnerable. At least I am. Because people are going to want you. So why, and they're going to want to kill me to get you. So why don't we do this? Why don't you just tell every place we go, I'm going to tell people when they ask, you're my sister. You okay with that? She goes, Okay. That's amazing. And two different men took her to be his wife. And she yielded. Now we can debate whether she should have and all that. I don't know. I I don't, you know there this is the thing. I have to believe in Sarah's mind she had no choice. Just as a woman living in Roman times had no choice. And she did what she was told to do. The point is she trusted God. That's the point here. It's not the context, it's not the circumstances, it's not what Abraham was asking her to do. Those are all secondary. The point is that she did that with no fear in her heart. That is astounding. And the reason she could do that with no fear is because her trust was not in Abraham, it was in God. That's what we have to understand. It, it is if, That's really the, the, the real big, the, if we're honest, that's the reason why submission becomes so difficult is because we don't trust the person we are having to submit to. And for good reason many times, right? The guy doesn't know what he's doing. Amen? Who does? You see? No husband is is a substitute for Jesus Christ. And even when we think we're being obedient to God, we could be completely wrong. But that doesn't undermine God's ability to care for us, to guide us, to protect us. He is still God and he can orchestrate exactly what he wants for our lives, even through incompetent leadership. That doesn't mean just go out and marry any loser. But it does mean no matter who you've married, God is big enough to lead you through that person. I've told many brides over the years, as I've done their wedding and been involved in their premarital counseling, the God that you believe led you to this man is big enough to lead you through this man. Do you believe God led you to this man? Yes. Then God can lead you through this man, even though he doesn't know what he's doing. God is God, and he is not limited by the ignorance or incompetence of that man. And if you know that, and know that your obedience and your submission is ultimately to Jesus, who is in control, then you can submit and obey your husband without fear because God's in control and he's good and he will care for you. Do what is right and do it without fear because God will protect you. In verse 7, he speaks to the husbands. and you think, well, man, he's going to straighten out the mess he's made. No. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. That really helps, Peter. Thank you very much. <laughs> Since she is a woman. Oh my word. I hate even reading the words. He'd go, man, P- Peter, you're just you're just you're just jumping from the pan into the fire here. What woman wants to hear that she is a weaker vessel and after all she is just a woman? Man. But that's our flesh this is the word of God and it doesn't need any apology. Now I don't understand, I will ask God this, day, this one day, maybe we'll all, we, we will have a class on, on male and female when we get to heaven, just the most basic stuff, 101. Okay? What does it mean that she's a weaker vessel? When women talk about this, I I typically hear them say things that I am uncomfortable saying as a man, because I fear for my life. (laughs) I have many times heard women say, women are weaker vessels in every sense of the word, particularly emotionally, prone to being deceived, and I'm, I'm not prepared to go there. Because again, I know lots of strong women, They are not necessarily weaker emotionally. Intellectually, man, I've been teaching long enough, I know. (laughs) know, the, The women typically make better grades and are better students than the guys are. So, but at least physically, goes without saying. The average man is much stronger physically than his wife is. Maybe that's all Peter's having saying in mind. But the big thing is not in what sense is she weaker. There is a difference. We are not the same. He is saying that. And a man needs to live with his wife in an understanding way. He's not going to obviously understand everything, but he should try. He should try to... He said, it's, again, just to work through this, dwell with. That means be with them Physically. With understanding, a man should use his brain in trying to think, what makes my wife different than me? Granting her honor, that's dealing with the emotional aspect, that your prayers may not be hindered, the spiritual aspect. Men and women are different, regardless of what the world's telling us. We are not the same. We we look at life differently. We relate to each other differently. And a man needs to seek to understand that. I believe that a woman needs to understand her husband. And in that, he says, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. So again, that that should comfort women. That God is opposed to the man who treats his wife as a second-class citizen who treats his wife as an underling and not as an equal, as a co-heir of the grace of life, who is demeaning and disrespectful to her. God is opposed to that man. It will not go well for him. Now I want to make some more observations and comments about submission in this whole subject. Going back to that thought about patriarchy, just briefly. Studies have been done, um, apparently, here in the United States about where are women most likely to be abused, in states that are strongly patriarchal or states that are more egalitarian. And the results say women living in patriarchal states are more likely to be abused. I don't like that. But then you go a little deeper into the study, and when the questions, and and actually there are questions in the studies, one one study was actually asking men the question, do you believe that as a husband you have the right to slap in the face your wife when she disagrees with you? And then those men apparently are more often found in strongly patriarchal states. Well, that is not what most men believe. But Then they get into the study a little bit further and they look at church attendance. And a man who on occasion attends a conservative Protestant church is the one most likely to abuse his wife in the United States. I don't like that statistic. But apparently it's the truth. But there's another statistic those men who regularly attend a conservative Protestant church are the least likely in all the United States to abuse their wives. So why would a man who only comes on occasion be more prone to abuse his wife? It might be because he already has that tendency in him, and he understands that that conservative Protestant church is teaching that there are role distinctions between men and women that we are not exactly the same when it comes to roles, that men are to be elders, the spiritual leaders of a church and not women. And so they already know that. And so there's some, there's some um, commonality there, but it's, it's not what he thinks. And if he were to go regularly to that church, he would not feel comfortable at all because that church is not demeaning and degrading women. It's treating them with honor and respect. And that's not what is in his heart, so he's not going to go regularly to that church. But men who regularly attend a conservative Protestant church are the ones that who are least likely in the United States to abuse their wives. We need to point out that submission is God's design for all Christians, not just women. And that's why these other passages here in Peter. But it is God's command. There is no place in the New Testament where where men are told to be submissive to their wives. But I think it's five times in the New Testament wives are said to be submissive to their husbands. It's commanded. And it's not unilateral, I'm sorry, bilateral. It is unilateral. This word, as I pointed out before, hupotasso is, is, is unilateral. It is never both ways. It is the same word that Jesus was submissive to his parents that the demons were submissive to the disciples. It is not a word where it is mutual submission. It's untrue of this word that that Peter's using. So the relationship between a husband and a wife, though they are equals, there is an authority. And the authority, if it is denied, mars the picture that God has established. This is not an issue of competence or worth. As I've already noted many times the woman is much more competent than her husband. Same was true with slaves and their masters. Many times the slaves were more educated, more competent than the masters were. This isn't demeaning submission, contrary to what the feminist movement would say. It's not about inferior, being inferior or superior. And if it is demeaning, then Jesus himself is being demeaned by the Father because he is in a constant state of submission to the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that he is eternally submissive to the Father. That's not demeaning. We know that our authority is ultimately to Jesus. Our submission is ultimately to Jesus. But that doesn't mean... That because Christ is our head, that there's no government authority, that there's no religious authority, doesn't mean that there's no authority in the home. Those things are are right and true in God's design. Galatians 3.28 is a favorite passage for the evangelical feminists because in that passage Paul says there is neither, in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond or free, or Jew or Gentile. Amen. In the context of Galatians 3, Paul is talking about our access to God. That there is no hindrance in coming to God based upon your race. There is no hindrance in coming to God based upon your economic status, slave or free. There is no hindrance in coming to Christ based on your sex, male or female. We have equal, unhindered access to Christ. Amen. Let me say a word about that. When it came to the church, we noted last week, in the church, a slave had the same status as a free man. And a slave could be the pastor of the church, could be an elder in the church. One of the first bishops of Rome was a slave, as it should be. So they took no consideration of whether the person was slave or free. They said, this man meets the qualifications of an elder, and he may have been an elder over his master. You think that would start to have, that, that thought, that concept that, an, that a slave could be an elder in the church over his master has in it the very seeds for the destruction of slavery. Wouldn't you agree? How can slavery continue when in the church, the slave has the potential for being the elder over the master? Slavery is not going to continue. What about Jew and Gentile? Jews said that Gentiles were dogs, and the Gentiles didn't think much better of the Jews. But in the church, man, they love each other and they're brothers, and there is no problem. And so you see, in the church, racism is destroyed. Amen. Right? There is no racism, and 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 there and there is, so there's no Jew or Gentile. And there is no slave or free. So the destruction of racism is in Galatians 3.28. The destruction of of, um, bond and free, of slavery, is in that. But what is not, but then here's the thing. When it comes to male and, and female, routinely, repeatedly in Scripture... Paul and Peter and the rest of the writers of the New Testament are saying, but there is the the leadership, the spiritual leadership of the church is to be for qualified men. Elders are to be men. That is clear in Scripture. Now, why would God say, Elders can be slaves, and elders can be Jews and Gentiles, but elders can't be women. For the reason we just said. The seed of destruction. You see, racism is destroyed by letting Jew and Gentile both be elders. And slavery is destroyed by letting the slave be an elder. And I believe marriage would be destroyed by letting women be elders. The reason I say that, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 with me. 1 Corinthians 14. This is about evaluating, about prophesying in the church and evaluating those prophecies. Verse 29, 1 Corinthians 14, 29. And let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So who are the others? Everybody in the church? Anybody in the church? Unlikely. Probably the leadership of the church because the leadership has been charged with keeping the church on track doctrinally. And so if somebody is going to stand up and say in the name of God, this is what the word from God I've received then there needs to be an authority in the church that can determine whether that is truly from God or not. Okay, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. You can all prophesy, men and women both. You can all prophesy one by one, that so that all may be exhorted and all that so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. For the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now this is where I want to get to, but verse thirty-four: Let the women keep silent in the churches. Wow. But he just said they can prophesy. You can all prophesy. But let women keep silent. There's no contradiction. Keep silent then in what respect? Well, in the context here, I think what he's saying when it comes to passing judgment on the prophecies. Because just think about the scenario. A man stands up and gives a word from God. I believe this is what God would say to our church today. And then he sits down. And a And the elders come forward and they say, well, let's think about this and let's open up our Bibles to see if this is true or not. And one of those elders is a woman married to that man. Now, what does that do to that home? And that woman elder says, sweetheart, I love you, but that was wrong. And now she has become his head. You see, you can only have one head. And when you come to church, you don't, it doesn't change. He is still the head of his home. You come to church, you are no longer his master. You come to church, it's no longer Jew or Gentile. But you come to church, your husband is still your head. That doesn't change. And so if it does change, then just as, as, as racism is destroyed and slavery is destroyed, then it seems to me we're destroying God's design for marriage as well. God says His design in a marriage is that there be headship. Just as Christ is the head of the church and God is the head of Christ, the husband is the head of his wife. And that does not change because of Galatians 3.28. Submission begins with an attitude of trust in God. If that's not there, then this is just law. And I am the last one that wants to preach law. This is about a relationship with Jesus and surrender to Him. It is not permitted or right for a husband to insist that his wife submits. Peter is showing the value he places in women, by addressing the women directly, not through their husbands. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. He doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. We should chuckle at that. It's not going to happen. You can't make somebody submit. So Peter addresses the wife in dignity and with respect and honor. He addresses her directly. It's not our place to say to our wives, you need to be more submissive. Any more than it's the place of the wife to say to the husband, you need to get your act together. Be the man God created you to be. Neither of those works well. The whole message of Scripture is to bring us to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you are submissive. There is nothing inherently wrong with submission. It's my heart that is wrong. You are obedient from the heart, O God. My heart is not. Jesus, do in me what is true of you. Will there be times when you have to say, I love you, but I can't obey you? Those times may come. I think they're probably more rare than we would like to believe. But those times may come. Should a woman, a wife, leave her husband if he is beating her up? Again, Peter doesn't even go there. But I think most of us would be in agreement. Yes, she should find a safe place. Divorcing him is a different matter. I personally don't believe that scripture gives any grounds for divorce. But I do see that there are times when separation is called for. For the purpose of being reconciled. Not for the purpose of punishing the person, but for the purpose of seeing the marriage be what it's supposed to be. There is obviously a potential for misuse of anything scripture says anything Scripture says. Because these verses are misused and abused, used to to treat women in a way that God never intended, that doesn't mean these verses are wrong. It means the application is wrong. It really comes down to whether we are willing to, by faith, accept God's design for marriage and for our lives. It's a faith issue. May not make sense. We can all, all point to examples where women are being abused. Terrible things should not happen. And the church should be involved to try and stop it. But the exceptions of how these verses are misused does not, should not negate the power of what God is saying. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as unto the Lord. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do live in a fallen world. You're more aware of that than even we are. You know what it could be and should be and what it is. You lived in it, and you were submissive. And yet in everything you did, Lord, it was in response to your Father. Always obedient to Him. I pray that we'd be the same. I thank you, God, for the light that you are are bringing to this world through our lives as those who've placed their faith in you and through our homes. Whether it's one spouse that's a believer or both, the light of Christ is going forth. We are different. We will suffer for it. The world is going to accuse us of all kinds of things that are evil and untrue. I pray, God, that we would humbly submit to your word and know that just in living a good life, we will be hated and persecuted. It is so contrary to what the world says and does. And I thank you, God, that even as we Embrace your word by faith. It doesn't make us more at risk. It's the opposite. We will never be in a safer place than when we are surrendered to you and by faith walking in obedience to you. Thank you, God, that our trust is not in men. It is truly in you. In Christ's name, amen.